as we turn our attention to consider His Word today, um, I really have, have desired to take opportunity to help us practically as a church as we consider who we are and our place in God's story, that we would do so in ways that mean something practically. Um, you know, it's, it's very um, easy for us to talk a lot as Christians, and we're often accused of that. Um, but then the reality is, what does that mean in practicality? And so um, what I want to do today is kind of just talk a little bit about our vision. This may be helpful for people who are not familiar with us. Um, I want to touch on our mission, um, but also want to kind of, in some ways, introduce for us as a church um, just a clarification of something that I think that will help us very practically on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, both personally and corporately. And so we will be looking at that in just a moment. So um, if you would join with me in prayer, let's turn to the Lord. Father God, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that truly you and you alone are worthy of praise, are worthy of honor, are worthy of blessing, are worthy of glory. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us, Lord, in your goodness and in your greatness. You have purposed us to be yours who are in Christ and to be one with one another together. Have your way among us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you can see, we have a a logo and strap line that we display from week to week. Um, You come along, you see it, and um, in some ways it's seeking to affirm our identity. Ecclesia, God's people for his glory. Now, from the outset, I will um, admit and confess that the word ecclesia is not pronounced necessarily or technically correctly. So... For those who know how it's pronounced, it seems they're always trying to correct the way that we say the name. What church are you from? Ecclesia. Oh, Ecclesia. No, Ecclesia. That's how we say it in South London. (laughs) It's an uncommon word enough as it is. And so it seems quite um, fair to just allow it to be pronounced phonetically at least to give people a fighting chance. (laughs) Ecclesia. And this word speaks um, both from the the Old Testament and the New Testament of God's people. It's the word that's commonly translated church. And it basically indicates those who have been called out and set apart 
by God, for God. Have been called out and separated by God and for God. And so in that, you say, okay, well, called out and separated from whom, from where? <laughs> that is a very, the, the answer to that question is much deeper than it might seem on the surface. On one hand, we can say God has looked at humanity and he's called out and separated a people from amongst everyone else unto himself. And he has done so in Christ Jesus. And so we consider the scripture that speaks of the fact that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And in that, there's a clear sense that God's people are different. They're not the same as everyone else. Now, if you begin to work through the implications of that, it will transform your life. People talk about this race, that race, and the other race. I always say, in reality, there's only one race. But that's not technically true. Yes, there's only one race, the human race. You have different ethnicities, different nationalities, but we are one race of people. And yet are we? Because when we consider the church, the ecclesia, the people of God, who have been regenerated, born again, made new from the inside out. The implication clearly states that we are a new breed of people. We are a new breed of people. Now, that's not really my main point today, so I'm not going to dwell on that. You can chew over that and what that really means. And so even in our strap line, as we seek to affirm our identity, we talk about the fact that we are God's people. Ecclesia, set apart by God for God. We're his, we're his possession. And yet it's with a purpose, that being for his glory. And what we're going to do is we're going to explore what does that really mean to be a people for the glory of God? Because often as Christians, we use words freely and sometimes frivolously, and we don't really stop to think what they mean. We don't really stop to think about the importance and impact of such words. And so what does it really mean that we are a people for his glory? Well, part of that is translated in the expression of our vision. As a church, our vision is to be a healthy church, equipped to disciple, faithful on mission. So these are, this, these are our grand aspirations, who we seek to be and how we seek to be as a people. If everything was well, everything was good, if everything was as it should be, we ought to fulfill those statements. Now we recognize that we're not there. We're a work in progress. And fundamentally, we will be continually, constantly working towards seeking to fulfill this, being a healthy church, equipped to disciple, faithful on mission.
if that's our aspiration, what's the focus of our function in terms of our mission? And I would say as you see these, you would recognize that actually it's, it, it doesn't really seem very complicated or sort of new and zingy and fandangled. Um, it's not meant to be. If what our vision and mission states doesn't resonate and come from scripture, then something's wrong. If, if you can't relate it to the Bible and what God has said about his people, then we've missed it somewhere because we're his people. And so who we are and what we do ought to be defined by him. Amen? Our mission to display God's glory by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout multicultural Lewisham and beyond. Now, I've heard it said that church mission statements generally aren't worth the words with which they're written. Because even as you look at that, you might say to yourself, okay, well, really, what difference does that make? How does that help me? How does that help me when I'm serving in my team? How does that help me when I'm out on mission? How does that help me when I'm amongst my colleagues at work, when I'm with friends at college? How does that help me when I'm among my unbelieving family? How does that inform and instruct and strengthen me? And we would ask that question because fundamentally we come back to what does it really mean to glorify God? What does it really mean to display God's glory? Now, in the book of Isaiah, God made it clear in Isaiah 43 that people were made for his glory. People were made for his glory. In the book of Isaiah, God is prophesying to his people and consequently the nations. The first 39 chapters are words of judgment and doom. And yet we see a turning point in chapter 40 as God begins to, what I like to say, big up his chest. He affirms his sovereignty, his greatness and his might and that there is none like him. And yet, in light of that, he goes on to promise a better day, a greater day, a day of fulfilled promise for his people. And so they're kind of generally the two sections of Isaiah. So as we kind of get to ch chapters 40 through to 46, we see God really challenges challenging his people as to, to what extent do you really know me? And in the midst of that, he says this, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And so right there from the Old Testament, we see that God explicitly states that the people that would be his people who are called by his name 
were created for his glory. Those whom he formed and made. Now God is glorious. Previously in chapter 42 verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Again, he says in chapter 48, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So there was no doubt that God wasn't trying to convince anyone of his glory. It was a matter of fact. His glory is the intrinsic expression of who God is. In our language, when we talk about somebody getting glory, we might think about their reputation being increased. So all of the media are reporting on this certain individual and they're getting favorable press and they're getting... um, newspaper coverage and bloggers are blogging about them and everybody's, you know, they're trending on Twitter and they're receiving glory. Often we see that that glory is short-lived because those that the media build up, they love to tear down, right? But fundamentally, what we recognize is that glory has more to do with what people think of them than who they are. It's not necessarily a result of or an expression of who they are within themselves. It's the way people think of them. Don't mistake God's glory for that. God's glory isn't dependent on what you or I or anyone else think of him. His glory isn't dependent on public opinion. This month he's the flavor, flavor of the month. Next month, thumbs down. Nah. All of a sudden, God's lost his glory. No. God's glory is an expression of who he is. And he is unchanging. There was a a situation in um, 1 Kings where under Solomon, the people came together to dedicate the newly built temple. And as they came together to dedicate the newly built temple and the priests gathered to offer prayers and praise unto God, uh, an exceptional phenomena occurred. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. 
And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord. the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. You're probably thinking, this is mm, very descriptive, but where are we going with this? Understand that the people had been used to meeting with God in a tent, a tent known as the tabernacle. It was a portable um, I was almost going to say like a porter cabin, but it was much, much more glorious than a porter cabin. But nonetheless, it was a tent. At this point, they've built a structure, a building, and it's the temple. And this is now going to be the place of meeting. And so they have built the temple in the same fashion as the tabernacle, where you had a, an outer court, place for the, for the priests in general to carry out their sacrifices and so on. There was an inner court, and then in, within that, there was a holy of holies. And these were different sections. They were sectioned off. And the holy of holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where once a year the, the high priest would go in, and only the high priest could go in. And he would take the blood of a, of a lamb that was spotless, and he would sprinkle the blood on the ark as a means of sacrifice, making atonement for the sins of the people throughout the, that year. And so they recognized this to be a very sacred, holy place that was revered. You may have heard it said that if a high priest went in there inappropriately, he would die in there. Such was the significance of him going into that small space and representing the people as he met with God. And in fact, if you've probably gone through reading plans at some point and you kind of read about the priests and the garments that they wear and that on the, on the tassel of their garments, they have pomegranates and bells. Um, and what would happen is those pomegranates, which would be dried pomegranates, um, as they were moving around, they would clang against the bells. 
and the people would hear the priests moving around. But once they didn't hear that, <laughs> hold on a minute, listen good. We haven't heard those bells for a minute. I think something's wrong. And in a situation like that, they couldn't rush in and try and help him out, find out what's wrong. In fact, the priest had a rope tied around his leg. In the unlikely and unfortunate event that those bells stopped ringing long enough, they, they pulled him out. Such was the sacred nature of what it meant to go into that space. And so here we see the picture being developed. They're about to dedicate this new space where they will meet with God. It says, There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. Now, they're indoors. We know you get clouds at altitude. Sometimes you might have a, you know, we had a bit of fog recently, right? Felt like a long time since we had fog like that. And you're kind of, it looks cloudy almost when you're looking through the fog. This wasn't altitude clouds and this wasn't fog. This was inside the building. And yet there was a cloud that filled the house of the Lord. It gets deeper. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That cloud is often referred to by the Hebrew phrase, the Shekinah. The Shekinah, which is the glory cloud of God. And such was the presence of God. I mean, I want you to imagine just for a moment. You're in here, and all of a sudden, visibility begins to reduce. And it gets less and less until it almost seems as if it's a smoke-filled room, but there's no problems um, inhaling and exhaling. There's no problems breathing. And yet the cloud is getting thicker and thicker. So you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Now, what do they tell you to do in smoke, in smoke-filled rooms? Uh, apart from get out. If you can't, get down low. And this was the natural, they could not stand to minister. They just got down on their face under this cloud. Because that's the right response to the glory of God. When we truly see, God permitted them to see something that was exceptional in that instance. And yet, as exceptional as it was in their experience, it's constantly true. God is glorious. God is always glorious. And when the eyes of our hearts see the glory of God, the only response is to get down on our face before him. 
The word used there for glory is the Hebrew word kabod, which means weight. And that weight isn't merely the, you know, you might think, okay, is that weight referring to the, the cloud and the weight felt on the people? I don't know. Actually, it may do because it says they could not stand. They weren't choking. They weren't dying. Maybe it actually had a physical sense of weight. But that wasn't necessarily the point. The point was it's merely a metaphor for God's weightiness. Back in the day, somebody would do something good. And you know colloquialisms, they kind of come and go. But I'm sure many of you remember this. And somebody would do something, you'd say, that's heavy. <laughs> My man's heavy, you know. And we're trying to say that the person's weighty. They've got substance. You see the way he parked that car? It's heavy. You see the way he aced that test? He's heavy. And that's what Kabbalah is communicating, that God is heavy. He's the heaviest of all the heavy. He has the substance beyond substance. And it's not just a, a substance that we look at and judge by our own esteem. It's a substance that is undeniable to all who would perceive it. Because it is the revelation of who God is. And this substance is such that it expresses the impressiveness. Because when we say someone's heavy, that's what we're saying, someone's impressive. God is the most impressive. And yet, it also expresses the importance Some of you went to schools where when the head teacher walked into the classroom, you all had to stand up. I say some of you because I know those of you that were come up in this country under 25s, that probably wasn't your experience. <laughs> but there will be many who remember when the head teacher comes into the classroom, you stand up. Because the most important person in the school has just walked in. You shut your mouth and you stand up straight. In a sense, the headmaster's heavy. And that was the response to recognize their importance. And so it is with the glory of God. We see... So, some of you may be aware that the Old Testament is, is written primarily in, in Hebrew and new, the New Testament in Greek. And at the time when Christ come, came, they were primarily using Greek as their common language. And so, what happened was, just before the time of Christ, the people um, translated the Old Testament into Greek language so that it was more accessible to non-Hebrew speaking people. And so that um, translation of the Old Testament is, is known as the Septuagint or the 70 because 70 scholars um, were commissioned and set 
aside to actually create this translation. And when you look at the Greek translation of this Hebrew verse in its original, the word that's used there for glory is the word that's commonly used in the New Testament for glory, which is doxa. Now, I don't say all of this to sound impressive, like I'm very learned. I know that as I was growing in the faith, I became very grateful for those types of insights. Because as I came across those words in other contexts, and other people and other teachers talking about those things, I didn't feel dumb. I felt like, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that. I've kind of heard what, what that's about. And I had an openness to learn rather than feeling inferior. And so, let's never be scared by words and their meanings. Doxa. And again, it communicates the same sense of importance and impressiveness. So when we consider the glory of God, what are we really considering? The revelation of. And you can underline that. Make note of that. Remember, God's glory is not dependent on anyone or anything external to himself. It's not based on public opinion. It's not based on how people view him in the way that human glory might. It is the revelation of himself. The revelation of the utmost importance and supreme impressiveness of God. The utmost importance and supreme impressiveness of God. Now, I heard um, uh, a Bible teacher, some of you may be familiar with his name, his name's Paul Washer. And he was trying to communicate this um, to children as he was breaking down um, catechisms. And he said, what I, I want to do is I want to give you an illustration. He said, imagine if you have uh, some balance scales. So not like the scales you're used to in your kitchen, those digital scales, you just throw stuff on it, it tells you how much it weighs. But balance scales where you put weight on one side and then in order to kind of see the, what the balance is, you put stuff on the other side to the point where it levels off, yeah? Now, I describe it like that because I know it's unfamiliar. For, I never grew up seeing balance scales, so. And so you've got some balance scales and you take everything in life, the mundane, the menial, you take the important, the great, the good, the valued, the impressive, you take everything in life and you put it on one side of the scale. Scale goes down, the other side's empty at present. You put God on the other side. Now remember, we're talking about everything in life. You, the universe and all that it contains, we don't even know how big the universe is. We just don't know. All of creation, place it on the scale and put God on the other side. Now we know what's going to happen to the scale, right? It's not even just that it's not going to balance. It's not even just that it's gonna out, God is going to outweigh everything. As soon as God touches that scale, it's gone. It's flown off. As if it never even existed. 
And so he said, it's like taking everything in the universe, the, the good, the great, the bad, and the ugly, putting it all on the scale and trying to measure it against God. God is of utmost, and these words don't even do justice to who God is. To say God is of utmost importance just feels so flimsy, so superficial. God is of utmost importance, as if, well, we're considering him among other things. And yeah, okay, we'll say he's of utmost. There's nothing to compare to God. Incomparable. Incomprehensible. The supreme impressiveness. I mean, words fail us to communicate the nature of God in all his glory. And yet, all of this is summed up in that term, glory. <laughs> now, imagine this. Jesus comes. We just observe Christmas, considered Jesus born in a barn, born in a stable, in a feeding trough amongst the sheep. Humble beginnings. He lived amongst the people and yet they didn't recognize his, who he really is. They didn't recognize his true worth and value. They didn't re recognize his importance and impressiveness. Although few did. And then we get to Matthew 17. And we see an occurrence that is exceptional and extraordinary. Somewhat like this occurrence in the temple in 1 Kings. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And so we see this instance where the glorious of Jesus, the gloriousness of Jesus couldn't be contained. It just leaked out. This wasn't even the full outburst of his glory. They, they would have been dead. But it just leaked out. His face began to shine like the sun. His, his clothes became white as light. And in this we see the, a glimpse of what is meant when the writer to the Hebrews says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance 
of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, these are intensely Trinitarian verses. And you and I know that's a very deep issue. And I'm not going to unpack and under, try and un unpack an understanding of the Trinity right now. But what we do understand that even in this verse expressing that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, it is not expressing that Jesus is anything other than God. It's not creating a distinction between God and Jesus. God has glory, Jesus is the radiance. Our English words are quite clumsy in the way that they, they translate these verses, and it warrants further study. But what we do recognize is this. One, it's affirming the fact that Jesus is God, one with the Father and the Spirit. And this is the doctrine of the Trinity as it's revealed um, through the pages of Scripture from the Old to the New Testament. That God is one being, eternally existing in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. And the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Son or the Father. There are three persons and yet one being, eternally existing. And we get a glimpse of this relationship here. And um, a person who I've, I've listened to and appreciated his teachings for many years, uh, I remember being captured by this phrase that he used as he explained this verse. This is John MacArthur. He said, speaking of the radiance mentioned in Hebrews 1.3, just as the radiance of the sun reaches the earth to light us, to warm us, to give us life and growth, so in Christ do we sense the warmth and the radiance of the glorious light of God touching the hearts of men. The brightness of the sun is of the same nature as the sun. It is as old as the sun, and never was the sun without its brightness. The brightness of the sun cannot be separated from the sun, and yet it is distinct. Some of you might want to take a picture of that. I really meditate on that, you know. Because I thought that was an extremely helpful explanation. The brightness of the sun is of the same nature as the sun. It is as old as the sun. And never was the sun without its brightness. It's like saying, can you ever get water without the wet? At the end of the day, 
one is fundamentally a characteristic of the other. It's consistent with the nature. The wetness of the water is just part of the nature of the water. The sun was never without its brightness. The brightness of the sun cannot be separated from the sun, and yet it is distinct. And so what we see even from the first paragraph is that the radiance communicates, transmits the light, warmth, energy, nature of the sun to other things and other beings. So we are how many hundreds of thousands of miles from the sun? And yet, we experience the light and warmth of the sun because it is communicated to us through its radiance. In this, we see that Jesus Christ is the personal and bodily revelation of God's glory. Now, the Apostle Paul in the Colossians says this, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Speaking of Christ, being revealed in the flesh. And the way in which he has been presented in such a way that people are called on to believe on him and be transformed. He goes on to say, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, speaking to believers. And so we see that in some senses, God in, God's intention has come full circle. What did we read earlier? The people whom I, whom I have made for my glory. God's intention is that his people would reveal his glory. And yet, that happens as people come into relationship with Christ. And as people come into relationship with Christ, who is the glory of God revealed, we become participants in his nature. And that's the only way that it could work, because what did God say in Isaiah that we read earlier? I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. Now this messed me up when I was going, I'm just like, God explicitly states, my glory I give to no other. So how is it that people can reveal the glory of God if he doesn't give his glory to anyone? No contradiction. As with all of those things that people try and cite as contradictions in scripture, if you are open-hearted and willing to consider the text as a whole and not take verses out of context, the Bible interprets and explains itself. We see the answer here. People sharing the glory of God, people reveal the glory of God, even though he said, I will not give my glory to another because when we come into relationship with Christ, Christ comes in us, we become, we share in God's life to the extent that Paul would say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
So when we consider the significance of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be in relationship with God through Jesus, to having surrendered our hearts to he who was manifest in the flesh, as 1 Timothy 3 tells us, verse 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh before witnessing. He lived a sinless life. You see, some of us associate glory with razzmatazz. Now, Jesus done razzmatazz as well. Healing the sick, walking on water. I mean, holy razzmatazz, if you like. Not to want to be crude or um, dismissive. But we can look at that and miss the substance of Christ's person. See, when people just look at the miracles, they can just see Jesus as some glorified magician. It was just some guy that was doing these awesome things. But Jesus was more than just some glorified magician. All that he done flowed out of all that he is. God in the flesh. And we see that revealed in the sinless life that he lived. And yet even having lived a sinless life and performed such feats of power and, and miraculous incidences, he was captured by the very people that he created. He was tried unjustly. He was beaten. He was scorned. And he was crucified. The most brutal form of execution that had been perfected by the Romans. Why? He was so glorious. Why? Because we're so unglorious. Because we don't seek the glory of God instinctively. We seek our own glory. The greatest hindrance to us glorifying God is ourselves. Because we want the glory. We want the shine. We want the recognition. We, we think that we're something. This morning, just as I was getting ready to come up, I heard that um, our former principal, well, he, he was still the principal, um, Mike Ovi from Oak Hill College, um, he went to be with the Lord yesterday. Mm. That's exactly how I felt, I mean. And so, immediately my mind just began to run on the times I sat in his class and just felt absolutely murdered by his teaching. We used to call him Mike the Mind Murker. Because you'd just come out of his class with your, with your head hurting. And a week later, you'd get it. You know when things just begin to kind of fall into place? And then you're just like, oh my days. You begin to understand. He was exceedingly gifted in his ability to understand and convey biblical truth. Um, and he will be evidently a great loss to the work of the kingdom here in, in Britain and obviously to his family. But heaven's gain. He used to have this phrase. He used to say, People are inherently curved in on themselves. And I remember the first time I heard that, it didn't really make much sense to me. Curved in on themselves. What do you mean? I said, fundamentally, 
we are self-focused, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-whatever you want to add on the end. That's who we are. We're into ourselves and our own glory. And this is why there is that necessity in the call of the gospel for us to deny our, ourselves and take up our cross, recognizing that Christ died as our substitute in our place. His life was given for ours that we would no longer live for ourselves, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. And as we turn from ourselves and our sinfulness and put our trust in Jesus and embrace him as our Lord and our Savior, our Redeemer, our Renewer, our inhabitant, we have the hope of seeing Christ glorified in and through our lives. On a practical level, what does it mean to glorify God? Paul Wisher says this, to recognize that God is greater, more valuable, more beautiful than all other things combined. And to live like we believe that. That God is greater, more valuable, more beautiful, to use my words, more important, more impressive than all other things combined. And to live like we really believe that. Like we really believe that that is how our career looks in the light of God. That is how our success looks in the light of the glory of God. That is how our pride and self-image looks in the light of God. That is how our relationships look in the light of God's glory. And so that becomes intensely practical. As you face a choice to do one thing or the other, you're able to consider what of these two choices, or however many choices you have, is going to demonstrate that God is of utmost importance and supreme impressiveness in my life? Which of these is going to demonstrate that? As you have a time of reflection and review your 2016, and you seek to evaluate your year and how it's been and begin to kind of maybe have a thoughts for where your years go in and, and begin to set some kind of goals and aspirations. The, this ought to be the basis of eva evaluation. How did I glorify God in 2016? How did I demonstrate that he is of utmost importance and supreme impressiveness? Where did I fail to do that? And why? Was it in my attitude towards my children? Was it in my attitude towards work? Was it in my attitude towards my commitments to the people of God? Because remember, we're his people. We bear his name. We participate in his nature. We are set apart, separated, by him, for him. And so, 
if we're going to love God, we're going to love his people. Does your attitude towards the people of God, not just towards church on a Sunday, because that's just a microcosm. It's not even one-seventh. Because we're not here for the whole day, even though it might feel like it when I'm teaching. As we do life with God's people, do we do so with an attitude that reflects that God is of the utmost importance, more important than anything else? Do we really? Because as we begin to do that, God's glory is revealed in and through us. And our hearts are encouraged. And not only are our hearts encouraged, but other people become touched. You know, we talked about the, the family fun day that we had last, at the end of May last year. And um, we had the leaders workshop yesterday and we was reflecting on 16 and just rejoiced at the family fun day. We took over the field outside and we had um, face painting and children's activities, bouncy castles, and we had um, food out there that was just cost price, dirt cheap, 50 pence for hot dogs and burgers and so on, and we had five-a-side football, and we had a stage, and we started the day with a service outside and then just had all of these activities going on throughout the day. And, you know, we noted the responses of people in the community. One lady came up to me, she was almost in tears, without exaggeration. She said, I just can't believe that you, you've done all of this out here. All of these free activities, the, f- the, food, the food's so cheap. I mean, apart from the effort, it must have really, like she said, look, I don't, I don't even really have much money, but can I, can I make a donation? This is just so amazing. And of the little money that she had, she was trying to give me something as an expression of her gratitude for all that was going on. And in that, I said, praise be to God, because it's not us. If we were left to ourselves, there would have been no family day. <laughs> if we were left to our own desires and intentions, no one, no one were trying to come in on, at 7.30. There wouldn't have been any stage set up out there, any bouncy castles. There wouldn't have been any goalposts and games. We would have just been off doing our own thing. We might pass through about two o'clock and say, oh yeah, see what I mean? These Christians, they say they're going to be doing this stuff and they're not doing anything. Look, there's nothing set up. There's nothing going on. I'm gone. <laughs> and that's, that's what it would be. But through the sacrificial commitment to demonstrate that God is more important and more impressive than anything, this day was presented that touched people's lives. Tuesday after Tuesday, a volunteer army descends on this place, sharing food freely in ways that touch people's lives and demonstrate that God truly is more important and more impressive than anything, that we would be led to do these things. And so as I ask the team to come and join me, and I invite us to stand as we pray. I want you to consider this. Two questions. Are you one of God's people? Because if you're not, you ought to be.
Are you one of God's people? God created you in his image and in his likeness. He created you to have relationship with him. Those who don't know God are assigned to hell. And yet the Bible says that hell is a place that was made for the devil and his angels. And so the one who would resist God, who would reject God, who wouldn't surrender heart and life to the Lord, finds yourself in a place where you're resisting who you're meant to be. You're rejecting the one who made you. You're actually siding with the devil. And therefore will end up in his place of eternal judgment. And yet, that doesn't have to be the case. Because Jesus, the glory of God, so glorious, he gave himself so that we could have relationship with God. So that we could have that reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so are you one of his God, God's people? And if you're one of God's people, are you committed to his glory? On a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, moment-by-moment basis, are you committed to his glory and not your own? Because likewise, we ought to be. Father, forgive us, I ask, for the ways in which we have resisted and rejected you, the ways in which we've sought our own glory, we've looked for and pursued our own glory rather than yours, the ways in which we've really um, wanted to have you share in our glory rather than us reveal yours exclusively. Lord, you are the most important. You are the most impressive the most beautiful, the, the most valuable, the greatest. Help us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory that you would even allow us to participate in your nature, to have the capacity to reveal your glory is it's mind-blowing, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for that hope. Thank you, Lord, for that privilege. Thank you for that, that transcendent purpose that goes beyond the here and now. It goes beyond this life. It goes beyond this world. It is an eternal purpose that we would reveal your glory. Thank you, Lord. We submit our hearts and minds to you and ask that you have your way. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.